0: welcome to the latest episode of Just Cause. I'm your host, Ryan Scott. I'm looking forward to sharing today's episode with you, which features a fascinating conversation with Phil Gursky. Phil has an immense amount of experience, in the world of intelligence, specializing in issues of national security and terrorism, with a particular focus on the Middle East and violent Islamist-inspired terrorism, which he gained through his firsthand experience working at CSIS, or the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and Canada's Communications Security Establishment, which is Canada's Signal Intelligence Agency. We have a really interesting discussion about his career in the security services, how the face of terrorism has changed over time, his views on what we should be focusing on now, what the public should be aware of, and what we should do with foreign fighters who now want to return home. Phil is the author of six books, with his latest being called The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. And he's kindly offered listeners of this podcast a 10% discount on this book, which is available by his website if you use the code JUSTCAUSE. More details will be provided in the show's notes. Now, on with the episode. I would like to welcome Phil Gerski to our episode today. Phil is the President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting Limited and the Program Director for the National Security Hub at the University of Ottawa's Professional Development Institute. He worked as a Senior Strategic Analyst at CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, from 2001 to 2015, specializing in violent Islamist-inspired homegrown terrorism and radicalization. From 1983 to 2001, he was employed as a senior multilingual analyst at the Communications Security Establishment, CSE, which is Canada's signals intelligence agency, specializing in the Middle East. He also served as Senior Special Advisor in the National Security Directorate at Public Safety Canada from 2013, focusing on community outreach and training on radicalization to violence until his retirement from the Civil Service in May 2015, and as a consultant for the Ontario Provincial Police's Anti-Terrorism Section. He was the Director of Security and Intelligence at the SecDev Group from 2018 to from June 2018 to July 2019, focusing on Islamist terrorism online. Phil has presented on violent, Islamist-inspired, and other forms of terrorism and radicalization across Canada and around the world. He's also the author of six books to date, with his most recent being published earlier this year entitled The Peaceable Kingdom, a history of terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Presence to the present. He regularly blogs, podcasts and tweets on national security and terrorism. He's an Associate Fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in the Netherlands and a Digital Fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia University. He's a regular contributor and commentator on national security, terrorism, and radicalization for a wide variety of Canadian and international media. He is fluently trilingual in English, French, and Spanish, and has a working knowledge of Arabic and Farsi and holds a valid Canadian top security clearance. Phil, thank you so much for being the guest. Um, I think it's safe to say you've just got a, a little bit of experience then.
1: <laughs> I'd like to think so, Ryan. First of all, thank you very much for having me as a guest on your podcast. It's a real honor to be here. And uh, I like the fact that you're you're talking to people who, you know, spent a few, a few days at the coalface. Um, I think there's lots of voices when it comes to these issues. And I think it's really important to hear, not just from those who kind of think about it or write about it, but those that actually you know, spent their careers, you know, worrying about it and, and, and dealing with these types of matters. So so kudos to you for launching the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Phil. I, I really appreciate it. And I, you know, I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed the most so far in my career, it's it's hearing those stories of people who've dedicated their career and their life, um, they live and breathe this work and and hearing their stories um, straight from their perspective and experiences is incredibly important.
1: You know, you talk about living and breathing and my, my dear mother, God rest her soul, always said, son, whatever you do, um, don't talk about religion and politics. So I became a terrorism analyst. So mom, wherever you are. <laughs> I've done nothing but talk about religion and politics for the past 30 years. Oh, so I apologize. My
0: <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's certainly been at the core. <laughs> so Phil, I I am so I am so curious. How how did you find your way into the CSE and and CSIS? And how did you start to focus on issues of, of terrorism and specializing in the Middle East?
1: Well, if I told you it was Plan Rianne, I'd be lying to you and your audience. It was uh purely serendipitous. So to keep a long story short, I was doing my master's degree at the University of Western Ontario. I'm from London. That's my that's my home. And uh, this was in the early 1980s, which is not a great job environment. There was a recession in the 80s. And as an arts graduate, chances of getting a job were pretty well slim to nil. Um, my choices were to work at London Life as an insurance agent, which I didn't want to do. And I went to the, uh, what's called the Alumni Placement Office. And I saw a poster saying that Nashville Defense wants linguists. Well, I was a linguist. I had French, I had Spanish, I had a couple of years Russian, a couple of years German. So I had a bunch of languages. And I applied. And um, without going through the whole rigmarole, I ended up getting an interview with this organization. And they liked what they saw. And they said, OK, we have to fill out this form for a security clearance, which I did. Took about, in those days, took three months so I had to get a TSSA clearance, which is unheard of nowadays. But again, that was 40 years ago. And so they say, OK, you're hired, come to Ottawa, report in this date. And I show up. And they said, well, by the way, we're not national defense. I said, what do you mean you're not in national defense? Well, we're something called CSE. Well, what the hell is CSE? So I got the indoctrination into signals intelligence. And, uh, and I'm listening to this, this this bear of a man. He was a the head of security at CSE, a former RCMP officer, telling me what signals intelligence is and, and how important it is and what my obligations are to keep it secret. He looks at me and he says, okay, son, I'm 22 years old. He says, son um if you betray any of this information it's 14 years in jail so oh my uh, i went home and said okay now what have i done but um no so it wasn't planned uh and, and the, these, of course these these are you know i'm, I'm nine times as old as you ran this is before the internet was born and so finding out about csc had i even known it was csc would have been extra impossible Oh um, there was no information on the organization. And so it was really just a, a matter of luck. And then when I got there and realized that not only was I going to work in languages, but I was going to be able to work with sensitive material on, on issues of, of the government of Canada. This, of course, is the winning days of the Trudeau, the first Trudeau administration. I thought, wow, I've, I've won the lottery. And um, they said, well, you've got linguistic tip skill, which I did. So well, we're going to teach you Arabic. So they sent me a one-on-one Arabic with a professor for three months. I came out fluent in written Arabic. Worked on that for a little while, but then I noticed that we were uh, there's all this Farsi or Persian, modern Iranian, was being collected as well, and no one was looking at it. I said, "Well, does anybody care what Iran thinks?" I think they probably do. So I taught myself Farsi um, in a matter of weeks uh, and became primarily a Farsi linguist. And then, in order to understand the material that I was dealing with, I had to understand the history, the politics, the economics, the societies, the culture, etc. And so I went on a campaign to learn a lot, a lot more about the Middle East. Um, so that was my CSE days. And then when I went to the service, uh, originally on Sikambin in 20, in 2001. So before 9-11, it was as an Iranian advisor. Um, and then of course 9-11 happened. And because of my Arabic, my Eastern background, I said, well, can you look at terrorism too? And that's when I morphed into a, into a terrorism specialist, uh, beginning in 2001.
0: Oh my goodness! That I mean, there are so many. There are so many questions there. First of all, <laughs> I can't believe taught yourself Farsi in a, in a few weeks. So first of all, that is incredibly impressive. So obviously, you have a have an, a knack for languages, which is great.
1: And I always knew I did. Uh, even you know, when I was in high school, I picked up languages easily, and I uh, just. And in an, an actual fact, one thing I've also done in my life, which you didn't mention in my biography, I taught linguistics for fifteen years at Carleton University in Ottawa part time. Oh wow! Okay. And I did two years towards a doctorate early 90s, uh, an unfinished doctorate in linguistics. And so languages have always fascinated me. The whole Farsi thing might sound impressive, but first of all, it's it's Arabic script. I had the script. Uh, And Farsi is actually very close to English in terms of its grammatical structure, very different than Arabic. They have the same script, but they're completely different languages. So the grammar I picked up in a weekend. And a lot of the vocabulary, because of of Islamic and, and Arabic influence over Iran over the over the last mm-hmm. fifteen hundred years, and a lot of the vocabulary was Arabic, which I already had as well. So it really wasn't tough. And you know, I am gifted, but I worked with a guy at CSC who no no word of a lie had twenty four languages, and he would pick oh, up a language in a weekend.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. That is, that yeah. is such, that is such an impressive <laughs> skill. That's, that's incredible. And Phil, I'm, I'm also curious. So, you know, going back to, you know, you're going through the the different interviews and you mentioned that they said, well, actually this is the, the CSE that um, the role is actually for. Were you, how did you feel when, when that happened that thought process, were you able to kind of take that away and think, you know, do I, do I really want to go into this world? how how did that thought process go for you?
1: Well, aside from flooring me that I was working in intelligence, something I'd never thought of. I mean, who thinks about working in intelligence mm-hmm. when you're an undergraduate student? I was just really lucky and, and grateful to have a job. Like I said, this was a very bad economic time in North America and worldwide in the early 80s. So to have a you know a master's degree in Spanish and then all of a sudden be thrust into the world of intelligence it was like, like, you know, pitch me awake, wake me up. Is this really happening? kind of thing. And and immediately upon seeing the nature of the material that I was asked to work on, I was like, Oh, this is so cool. Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't get any better than this. And, you know, it, 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 began a process. And I I use this line a lot and I'm not exaggerating. I, I had a job. Uh, both at CSE and CSIS, with, with very few exceptions over 32 years, I couldn't wait to get to work in the morning because of the nature of the work I was asked to do. And not a lot of Canadians can say that. Not a lot of people can say that. And as a as a consequence, I see myself as one very lucky Canadian to have you know, worked for Her Majesty's government, but doing things that but both of that I was good at. Yeah that were fascinating and that on occasion had significant impact on government decision-making. I remember being part uh, of times where we would be working on something and, you know, major meetings were postponed until our intelligence got to the decision makers because the the, the intelligence would inform the decisions that they make. So, you know, I mean, I'm only, a very small cog in a very big, you know, machinery, but knowing that people were waiting on what you would come up with and you're one of only two people in the country capable of coming up with that information. This is kind of cool, you know, when you're 23 years old and you've been told you're doing this, doesn't get much better than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I, it just must be uh I imagine maybe a little bit overwhelming at times as you're as you're starting to get into it. But
1: scary. Scary sometimes. Yeah. What if yeah. I get it wrong? You know, what if I miss what if I misinterpret? What if I, I mistranslate something? And you know, I I remember events where not only what you know what we were doing was it was by minute by minute what we were doing was important. And then a lot of pressures on Like you know, it's in mm-hmm. a foreign language, might be in a dialect you don't understand. You do the best you can and try to get the intelligence to the decision makers. But, yeah, it's it's a lot of responsibility. And at the time when I worked at CSC it was still during the Cold War. csc was still very much a Cold War organization mm-hmm. looking at the Soviet Union and its allies. And we were part of a very small office. And we were called, and I'm not making this up, the rest of the world. Oh, my gosh. And there were 12 of us, 12 out of a 1,000. And we were all university grads. Most of us were in our early to mid-20s. Like the oldest, oldest person was in the mid thirties and we had this enormous responsibility, uh, to keep the government informed on foreign intelligence. And, uh, it was, it was fascinating, but yeah, there was a, I remember a lot of late nights, a lot of weekends, getting calls at three in the morning saying, get your butt in here. You gotta look at this right now. It is what it is.
0: Wow. Well, you know, firstly, thank you so much for your service over such a long period of time and, and continuing clearly to, to do it as well. Um, Thanks. When you so as you started to get into that world, did they provide you with training? Like, how did you start to learn how to to do the job? Um, coming from you know a background that you you weren't yeah. intending on going in this career.
1: Yeah, CSE was quite good. They had a very robust training program. I mean, again, because CSE didn't exist for most Canadians and you couldn't research them, you know, knowing anything about signals intelligence, I I had zero knowledge. So I had to learn a lot about some just some basic, you know, Laws of physics about you know how radio electromagnetic waves can travel through the atmosphere, how they're modulated. Learned a lot more about radio than I ever, ever thought I would ever learn. Not so much that I had to be. I wasn't the collector. I wasn't the guy you know tuning the dial to collect things. Although later in my career, I was the head of collection at CSE and had some really smart people doing a lot of good work for me. But they were quite good at. at Bringing us into this world, and of course, csc is also part of what's called the Five Eyes network. You know, the United Kingdom, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and a lot of sharing of information amongst those partners. It, it's by far the gold standard of, of sharing that I've ever seen in terms of intelligence. Uh, and as a consequence, we got a lot of material from them as well. So they did a very good job of training us because we really were very green. We we're very neophyte at the time, and uh, and we very rapidly came up on you know being able to understand this stuff. So kudos to them doing that. The other thing I want to point out too, of course, we is the CSE of today is a very different organization than one that I worked for. Not only has the Cold War ended, but you know CSE is much more into sort of the whole called cyber command, cyber attacks, which we didn't do back then as much. Although even back then CSE had kind of uh, it was two headed. It was called FI foreign intelligence and ITS and, you know internet or technology security kind of thing. And of course, this is the internet is growing. At that point, uh, the CSE today is, uh, is is very different. The CSE that I that I worked at didn't do terror, didn't do counterterrorism. We didn't have that as a part of our mandate. That changed, of course, after 9 11. And so, a lot more counterterrorism, a lot more cyber attacks, protecting the Canadian government from cyber infiltration and things like that. So, and and also, they've tripled in size. I mean, they were a thousand strong when I left them, I and they're somewhere around 3,000 strong now. So, brand new headquarters besides CSIS in Ottawa, uh, in a much bigger, probably more dynamic organization that I used to work for. Okay.
0: You know that is uh, it, it's fascinating. You know that you that you were starting to work in that in the Cold War era, and you you saw nine eleven. And now that we're we're twenty years later, I, I'm really curious around your views around maybe maybe a couple of things around has the nature of terrorism fundamentally changed mm-hmm. and. Do you almost see like a pre-9/11 world and post-9/11 world? I'm curious around around your views. You know, are, are there some key fundamental I guess, common elements that have stayed in place on, on the terrorism element? Is, is it just different groups? So and anyways, just, just a few of uh, your thoughts around those things.
1: Sure. Uh, one person I, I highly recommend that your listeners look up is a man called David Rapoport. R-A-P-O-P-O-R-T. He's in his mid-90s now. I actually interviewed him on a podcast uh, a little more than a year ago. He's at UCLA in the States. And, and he's, a, he's a political scientist who's known for what's called the wave theory of terrorism. And, and, uh, you know, I won't go into the details, but essentially there's been four major waves of terrorism since the mid 19th century, when most people agree that modern terrorism began sort of post US Civil War, if I can use that, you know, use that date. Anyhow, um, we are in what's called the fourth wave of terrorism, which is the religious wave of terrorism, and it dates pretty well from the the. From 1979, which was an incredibly important year for three things, two of which people remember, one of which they forget. One, of course, was the Iranian Revolution in February. The Shah was ousted and the Ayatollahs took over. Uh, The second was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan on Christmas Day of that year. And probably, maybe most importantly, was the the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in November of 1979 by a bunch of jihadis, a siege that lasted several weeks, and the Saudis were incapable of, of resolving until they brought in French special forces, Converted into Islam on the spot, so they could enter the mosque and basically oust the, the jihadis. That has been the dominant form of of, of extremism worldwide. Since it's not the only form, we certainly have had um, other forms like you know the like nationalist terrorism, like the LTT in, in Sri Lanka, uh, the ETA in in Basque country. But there's no question that from a fatality perspective, that over the past forty years, this has been the dominant form of terrorism: tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of attacks, hundreds of groups around the world. And, and david you know used to say that these waves lasted on on average two generations for about 40 years and if you see the previous waves you see they kind of petered out after about 40 years the problem with this wave is this it's showing no signs of petering out al Qaeda's is not going away islamic state's not going away al-shabaab's not going away way you know there's there's, there are temporary successes that governments claim here and there and every time they say oh yeah we're we're finally we finally defeated group x y or z only to find out that a month later group x y or z is still around and this is i i push back against those who say that terrorism has shifted significantly over the past couple of years we're seeing a, a big debate here especially in western society including canada where um they'll all that everyone wants to talk about is right-wing extremism and its manifestations neo nazis white supremacists white nationalists QAnon conspiracy theorists even incels are called terrorists wrongly in my opinion and what people are ignoring is that um if you look at terrorism like i do on a daily basis and you mentioned that you know i, I tweet and i, I podcast and I blog on a daily basis Rianne, i'm tweeting 20 to 30 attacks around the world 99.9 percent of them are carried out by jihadists not white supremacists not new, not you know, environmental uh, activists, uh, jihadis, Islamist extremists, and this trend is showing absolutely zero signs uh, of ebbing. I just put out a recent perspective on Africa. And in Africa alone, there's probably 20 different jihadi movements that are operating on a daily basis. And so it's almost like the, you know, plus I change, things have remained the same. And and I don't see any end in sight for this particular manifestation of terrorism. Despite, you know, Donald Trump said ISIS was defeated back in 2019. Well, they're not defeated. I mean, the Kurds have told us that in their area of Iraq and Syria they control over the past four years, there've been 5,000 attacks in four years, 5,000 attacks in four years. Now, they're not all 9-11, but they're, some are very, very small. Most of them have failed, but 5,000 thousand Do the math. That's four attacks a day over the past five years. So um, the bad news is that these guys aren't going away. And, uh, you know, you might get minor successes here and there. We haven't had any major events here in Canada since 2018, I believe. Um, but there's still arrests being made, there's still investigations being carried out. And so this particular version of terrorism will be the dominant strain going forward. There's no fifth wave that we're a part of right now. Not that I can determine anyhow. This is still the fourth wave and it's very strong.
0: I think it's uh I think it's interesting actually that um we're speaking on the day that I think it's the the seventh anniversary of, of corporate right. Corporal Nathan uh, Cirillo, so, um, yeah. Cirillo. Sorry, uh, in, in the Parliament um, Buildings uh, attack. That was uh, that was just I think so vivid in people's minds, and just
1: that's an, a picture from the day of. That's an officer. Oh wow! Uh, yes. An Ottawa police officer, and um, I even have an interesting story about that day. If you don't mind, yeah, I mean, it absolutely. is the seventh anniversary, and of course, he was killed by. Michael Zanthi bo, who was an ISIS wannabe he wanted to go abroad to fight in jihad he was told he couldn't go he had his passport confiscated and so he did what what, what I you know I've said is that well I can't do it there I'll just do it here uh, and he you know he went to the war memorial he uh, he shot an unarmed Nathan Cirillo and he killed him and then raced to parliament tried to breach the, the front door and it was killed. And I think he was shot 37 times um, by wow. uh, Parliamentary Security and died. But the interesting story from my perspective, Rihanna, is at the time, uh, I uh, so this is 2014, I was still with Public Safety Canada. I hadn't retired yet from the security service. I was actually in Toronto. I was uh, at Toronto Police Headquarters, giving a presentation with, with a colleague of mine from the CSIS Toronto Region Office on terrorism. And uh, right after the presentation ended, I had got in the car with a, a guy who, that later became my colleague from OPP-PATS, and he drove me to Coburg, where I gave a similar briefing to OPP-PATS. And as we're driving down the 401, there's news mm-hmm. from Ottawa that an attack has taken place. And a very dear friend of mine who was uh, with the RCMP, seconded public safety with me, he was, I'm on the phone with him. And he's giving me like a you know, minute by minute, blow by blow what's happening. And of course, they were in lockdown until five o'clock that afternoon. They mm-hmm. couldn't leave the office until five o'clock. And I said to myself, here is everything I've worked for my entire life to understand is happening two blocks from where I'm working and I'm in a car going to Coburg. And it seems sort of incongruous to me at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, of course we did know a lot of what was happening at that very, But more and more came out, of course, about who we both was and that massive outpouring of, um, Of of recognition of Nathan Cirillo, Uh, you know, I, 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 so I got back to Ottawa that evening, and I walked. I went to work the next day, and I walked across the National Cenotaph. And Rianne, you couldn't walk across that thing for the bouquets of flowers and tributes that were laid in in honor of Nathan Cirillo. He was on honor guard, as you know, as, as they have all the time. And I remember stopping and, and just stopping for a minute and, you know, expressing my condolences for, for, for Nathan's And I told myself, okay, this is it. I'm rededicating myself to understanding these people and and doing whatever small part I can to educate Canadians on who, what they're all about, what their ideology is and what we can do about it. And it was, um, you say it, it you know, it's seven years ago today. And, uh, that attack, if nothing else, I think really, really hit Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was the venue. It was an, it was the national Senate tap. I don't know. I mean, if, you know, if you've ever been to the November 11th there, you can't, you can't swing a cab. and There are people that go to downtown Ottawa on that day and then attacking parliament, the seat of our democracy was, it was a huge blow to I think to us as Canadians and um Again, I think it demonstrated we're not immune to this stuff. We we, we like to see ourselves, oh, we're, we're Canada. Who hates Canadians? Everyone loves Canadians, right? Well, actually, a lot of people do hate us, whether it's our role in NATO, it was our, our deployment to Afghanistan, the fact that we're in the Sahel. Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on, right? And certainly in my time at CSIS, we, we worked on hundreds of investigations, some of whom had morphed into major plots that were all disrupted, thankfully. But here's one that got through. Here's the one that got through the cracks, and Nathan Cirillo was killed. And, and when you work in this business, um, th- there's something that you you accept. You don't like to be accepted, and that is that you're only as good as your last failure. So the questions become: Well, why didn't we know about Zafi, But why wasn't he on the radar? Why wasn't he being investigated? How did he get a hold of a gun? How did he blah blah blah? And he was on the radar, but you know, so are hundreds of others of people. And you have finite resources to do infinite investigations. And so I'm not I'm not making excuses for Csis or the RCMP. That's just the reality. And you know, we think we've got it bad. The UK, so the MI5, the British Security Service, the CISIS equivalent in, in, in the United Kingdom, has 23,000 people of interest on their list. It's 23,000. At incredible. any given time, we had a couple hundred. So they have two orders of magnitude more. You tell me how an organization investigates 23,000 people simultaneously, and it got it's even worse. At any given time, this is in the, in the 2010s when I used to go to the UK, they had 30 credible mm-hmm. threat to life plots. They're investigating simultaneously. Very you know, credible life to plot. Something. It's just the numbers are daunting.
0: Exactly. How? I mean, it's it was a, it was such a huge question. Um, so I, I was living in the uk in 2016 and 2017 mm-hmm. and certainly in 2017 there were there were a few very uh high profile uh attacks yeah. um, while i was living there and yeah. it was i mean it was fascinating in so many ways one to see how um people in in london in particular where i was living uh responded um for instance to the westminster bridge attack mm-hmm. the london bridge and, and uh, borough market attacks yeah. and just what what life was was like you know it suddenly became you know armed police officers guarding the tubes you know you'd start to think yeah. you know where's the safest place for me to to sit on the tube going to work Is yes. it's safe to go to work? my yeah. office was you know suddenly surrounded by by security there were armed forces on the streets it, yeah. it was it was such a fascinating um time to be living in life especially coming from Canada whereas yeah. as you just said Phil you know it's something that we haven't really no. dealt with so that was that was a massive shift mm-hmm. and you know that whole conversation around well did we know about them how did we how are we tracking them well how on earth do you track 23,000 different people <laughs> I mean it's it's you know, it's so difficult. You, mean,
1: you make decisions on a daily basis and, and you hope yeah. you get it right and I, you know I could imagine I mean they would they would classify it into tier one, tier two and tier three. And you know even a tier three is a, is a threat to life, but it's a tier three. and you deploy your your men and women, you deploy your surveillance teams, mm-hmm. you deploy your human sources. And you just hope that you've got the tier one, two, and three correct. And it's, uh, you know, you talk about we're not here in you, you Canada being useless. And probably the last time we saw this was during the FLQ crisis in 1970, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the kidnapping of James Cross and the Pierre Laporte, where the streets of Montreal were filled with Canadian forces who were armed until that crisis was resolved. But yeah, we don't, and, but you know, you got to give it, uh, the, the Brits credit, Rihanna. It's, you know, keep calm and carry on. They, they survived the Blitz in the, in the Second World War, and Very they survived IRA nice. terrorism throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And yeah, they talk about it and maybe people are a little bit more nervous, but hey, you know, they've been there, done that, and they're not going to let these terrorists essentially cow them into inactivity, I suppose.
0: That's that's very true. That that definitely seemed like uh, like the way. It's definitely something I learned a lot from them. Especially when you know in the office, you know, suddenly signs would would appear around um, telling us what to do if um, an armed shooter came in. Um, you know, run, yeah. hide, tell that kind of thing. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, what this is such a different world that I'm living in. Yeah. This is incredible. But yeah, I mean, Londoners and and the Brits, they're so stoic, uh, so st- uh, stoic as. Um, you know, for many of the reasons that that you described,
1: well, I'll share one more story with you on this. Yeah. Is that when I was with CSC, I used to go, of course, for to GCHQ, which is the British signals intelligence organization. At this lovely little campus in a town called Cheltenham, it was a beautiful little British town, and uh, we used to walk there. We we were we were. It was so quaint that the hotel we stayed at, we they, they would drop off top secret documents to the hotel because they trusted the hotel people to get them to us prior to Amazing. our meetings, which <laughs> was really cool. But before you went in, it was a it was a heavily gated um, campus that they had and your vehicle was stopped outside, people with mirrors would be look under the vehicle and you'd see a sign. We were at level, and I remember being there, you know, we were at a level one alert, meaning that we have credible intelligence that a terrorist attack is possible. In those days would have been the IRA. And uh, so, you know, again, it's that was just normal. <laughs> and for us, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, having worked for both CSC and CESA, security has been pretty low key. You know, we used to joke that, you know, what, you know, what does it, what does a security guard say when, when, when a, when a, a guy with a gun comes up, just stop or all you'll stop again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds silly, but uh, you know, we, we just don't have that, that nature mm-hmm. of the, uh, the threat that other countries have, you know, it's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and thankfully, I mean, I'm not
0: complaining, my dude. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, Phil, uh, you know, recognizing, obviously you'll have, you'll have some restrictions on, on what you can say, but um could you tell us a little bit around a bit more around the the type of roles and, and work that you did at at CSC and CSIS? Sure. sure.
1: So for the most part, I, I worked as a, as a multilingual analyst. Well, that, what that entailed was that we, I mean, information would be collected, uh, would be processed. Um, At times it would be decrypted because it was enciphered. We would take a look at it. We would uh, see what it says and see if it responded to any intelligence requirements of the day. And if so, we would Mm -hmm. essentially write up reports for government of Canada to, to, to understand what we had seen. I also did work as a crypt analyst for the better part of a year. Um, Worked with some extremely talented computer specialists and mathematicians that knew a heck of a lot more than I did. Um, You know, I, I'm not a mathematician and I'm certainly not a cryptanalyst. but my job, because of my language, is to say, well, we think we've broken this code. Does this make any sense to you? And I'd say, well, yeah, I can read this or no, I can't read this. So I can't read it clearly. You haven't broken the code. That was really quite fascinating to work Mm -hmm. in that. I also worked, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the head of collection and data flow for a while. So basically all the information that came into CSE came through my office and we had to figure out, you know, know, um, to manage the data flow as well as to find out new sources. Um, But yeah, most of my career was spent as a linguist analyst and that was, again, working in about 12 different languages. And uh, it was, you know, worked some incredibly important events. Um, One I remember in particular was the Rwandan genocide of 94. We were getting... uh, minute by minute intelligence on where the slaughters mm. were taking place. Um, hard to deal with, but, you know, but people have to know what was happening kind of thing. Um, I like to brag that the very first year, um, year of my employment, 1983, was both the, the year that the Russia, the Soviets shot down a Korean airliner over the uh, peninsula, killing 200 and some odd passengers, and there's also the year that Ronald Reagan invaded Grenada. Uh, and I had a major role to play in that, not in the invasion, but in the, intel- <laughs> in the intelligence surrounding it. And as a 22 year old kid, and then all of a sudden, like I said, people are waiting and saying, "What does this thing say?" And what does it say now? It was was it was incredible. By the end of the two th- or the 90s, uh, it was it was time for a change. I, I, I'd gone as far as I could in terms of my career path, and and mm-hmm. CSE at the time, you, you had to become a manager basically to to move on. And I wasn't interested in managing people. I'd done it. It just wasn't my thing. I was, a, I was an operations guy all of my life. And so a very good friend of mine who was the CSIS liaison to to, uh, to, see, to, to CSE said, well, we'd love to have you. Why don't you come work for us? And so it us to secondment, uh, Realizes as soon as I got there, I wanted to stay. So I was actually a secondee for the better part of a year, a year and <laughs> four months, and then resigned from CSE and joined CSIS permanently in, in April of 2002. And that's where I worked as a strategic analyst on, on, on Iran originally and then on terrorism. And what that entailed essentially was working with the investigators across the country, uh, seeing what they were collecting, what the human sources were telling them, um, what the intercept. So CESIS has the ability under what's called Section 21 of the ceases Act to apply for a federal court, federal court warrant, much as the police do. The police call us a, a Part 6 warrant. And so you go to court and say, well, you know, Phil gursky's a bad guy. This is what we know about him. We need to read his emails, get his telephone calls to see exactly what threat he poses to public. Prop- safety. And so I look at all the information that was coming in and, and, you know, try to make sense out of it because my job was to take what the investigators were finding and spin it into reports that government clients could read. Uh, The other part that I did is um, because I'm, I'm, I I really enjoy public speaking. I've always enjoyed public speaking, which is a a, a, pretty rarity. And I was very good at it. Um, I was the CSIS guy that went around the world. On behalf of the service talking with allies talking to canadian partners <clears throat> i go to conferences and give a you know a talk for three hours on terrorism to 400 people kind of thing and uh you know enlighten them as to you know what the, what the threats were so uh, all in all as i said earlier very one very lucky canadian that had a job that was um, changed on a di- i mean on a daily basis both at CSE and csis i didn't know on any given day what i was working on uh every day was different and how many Canadians can say they had that mm-hmm. opportunity to have that kind of variety. I was just, again, thank my lucky stars every day that I had the opportunity.
0: That's incredible. Phil. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of mm-hmm. different um, examples and, and, you know, things that, that come to mind um, in terms of <clears throat> situations. <clears throat> I'm curious around, you know, are, are are there any other major things that have happened in your career that, that stick with you that stand out in in your mind that, um, and, and just curious around, you know, what you might be able to share on that and, and, and why they've stayed with you.
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, um, one of the most, <clears throat> excuse me, important events was the Toronto 18 investigation in 2005, 2006. This was our, our first really significant post 11 terrorism investigation. You know, um, as I've written extensively in my, in my latest book, I mean, terrorism doesn't date from the 2000s, right? It dates from, you know, from and the first terrorist attack was in 1868. Thomas Darcy McGee was assassinated by a Fenian terrorist on Spark Street in Ottawa in April of 1868. But I, I think from, a, from a, what it meant to me and what it meant to Canadians' perspective, the Toronto 18 investigation was it, which was a group of Torontonians, um, is Muslims who were trying to, we gonna blow up parts of downtown Toronto. This really, I think, illustrated um, a couple of things. First of all, the threat was real. We're not making this stuff up. This was an actual plot. And it was serious. <clears throat> they had three tons of ammonium nitrate, they had three detonators, they had three targets, and they would have killed and or maimed hundreds, if not thousands of people had they succeeded. But because we had them infiltrated with human sources and surveillance and warrants, we had them wired up to ying yang and we knew exactly what they were doing before they knew it, which is why we successfully... Um, deterred them. In fact, when they are arrested on June the 2nd, 2006, they were taking delivery of the three tons of ammonium nitrate they were taking it out of a truck and putting into a storage locker in Toronto. And that's when they were arrested. So success, great RCMP mm-hmm. effort. Um, you know, we we found out about them first. Uh, we, we told the RCMP. It's a very delicate dance that CSIS does with the RCMP for a whole host of reasons. The whole intelligence versus evidence uh, conundrum in, Canada, in Canadian law. But bottom line is no one got hurt. And they all got arrested. And they all went to trial. Then it was interesting. Um, they were all held uh, pre-trial. A couple got released. Um, charges were dropped. A couple got <clears throat> convicted and were, were given time served. In other words, never you know in pre custody pre-trial custody. Only a handful got serious sentences. And to the best of my knowledge, they're all out. They're all out. So what it said to me was that the Canadian justice system thinks that. 18 people who wanted to kill and maim hundreds, if not thousands of Canadians, an appropriate sentence is time served. Time served. You know, Rianne, in the United States, and they're maybe the other end of the spectrum, these guys would have got life in a supermax in Colorado. Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying that's what we should do here in Canada, but it seems to me that we're rather lenient when it comes to terrorism Mm. in terms of our sentencing. And the interesting thing was how Canadians reacted Mm-hmm. And it was, you're kidding me, right? This this can't be real. This just must have been a, a, a you know, a, what we what call a Mr. Big operation, an entrapment operation. This doesn't happen in Canada. And of course, the defense lawyers like to, you know, Paint their clients as these innocent dupes that were tricked by CSIS and the RCMP into doing something they wouldn't normally do. When actual fact, having followed them from day one, I know exactly what their ideology was, and mm-hmm. they were intent on doing this. And were they, you know, were they the sharpest pencils in the box? No, but I'm, I hate to say this, but you can be a complete moron and a complete idiot and carry on an act of terrorism. Mm-hmm. It, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. And we're seeing that every day now. People pick up butcher knives. They pick up golf clubs. We had a case in Canada in 20, 2018. A woman walked in the Canadian tarp with a golf club. And she was an ISIS supporter. So, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, Daniel Craig. You don't have to be uh, Osama bin Laden. You don't have to be a genius to do this stuff. And people people dismissed it. And I remember I was in a bar in, in The Hague. I was over in the Netherlands talking to the Dutch. And I remember uh, I was with a friend of mine from um, United Kingdom. She worked for the... Um, British government. And uh, the news came out that the they'd been found guilty. And I remember yelling out loud in this Dutch bar that we'd finally gotten a success in a terrorism case. And it took four years, it took four years from arrest to actual conviction. And I just thought, boy, Canadians are naive. Oh my goodness. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, scare the before. bejesus out of people. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in panicking, and I certainly have stated on many times that we, if we see terrorism as an existential threat, we are fooling ourselves. It is not an existential threat to Canada. It is to Afghanistan, and it is to Somalia, but it's not to Canada, but it's still serious. And I think if, if, when we when we undermine and distrust the organizations that, that are paid to do this stuff for us to keep us safe. I mean, what does that say about us as Canadians and our mm-hmm. understanding that the, the threats are re- very real out there? So that, to me, I think is it is probably the biggest thing. I've already talked about the, you know, the whole Nathan Cirillo thing. Um, and there are other cases that I worked on. I mean, I, the uh, the Victoria plot in 2013, the candidate plot in which a, a couple were convicted by a jury, and then the judge threw it out on a, what's called entrapment. I testified in the trial for the, for the Crown. I followed these guys from day one, and the judge decided that they were just, they were duped by the RCMP, and that was an incredibly boneheaded decision by the judge. People will disagree with me. Uh, But I, you know, were they intent on doing it? Yes. Were they capable? Well, as I said, any idiot can carry on a terrorist attack. They had three working pressure cooker bombs. They took inspiration from the Boston Marathon attack, which had taken place three months prior in April of 2013. They would have maimed hundreds of people on the lawn of the Victoria legislature on Canada Day in 2013. And yet the judge decided that that wasn't their fault. When in actual fact, it was a brilliant RCMP investigation. You know, as I, as I said about the Toronto 18, what more do you want? You've got a human source that knows more about the targets they know about themselves. That's a, that's a perfect investigation because you're in control the entire time. When the Toronto 18 were arrested, they weren't taking out, they thought it was fertilizer. It had been substituted for an inert substance. When the, when the, the couple in, in Victoria placed those bombs on the grounds of the legislature on the morning of Canada Day, they thought they had three working bombs. They weren't working bombs because they'd been replaced by the RCMP. What more do you want the RCMP to do? Exactly. Anyhow, sorry, I'm starting to pontificate and I apologize. No, no, but- no,
0: that's, that's okay. And I, I'm curious then, you know, where, where do you think the, the gap is then between the work that CSIS and the RCMP and other police uh, services are, are doing to, you know, to collect evidence, to make the arrest, to bring, you know, working with the Crown to bring this to trial. And then the, the judge's decision. Where is that? Where is that gap in, um, I guess, knowledge, understanding and the and the outcomes that result? How, how does that get fixed?
1: I think the problem, uh, and I make it I make it quite clear in, my, in the book that I said, the Peaceful Kingdom. We've had, and if you could, the most generous definition of terrorism available, we've had probably twenty plots or twenty attacks in one hundred and fifty four years. That's an attack every seven years. Now, in fairness, there was a century between attack one and attack two, between the uh, TDBG assassination and the first FLQ bombings in Montreal in the sixties. I don't think the courts have any co- comprehension of what terrorism is. Secondly, terrorism wasn't an offence on Arcanian Canadian law until after nine eleven. Mm. All the attacks we had in the 80s, Air India, the Armenian attacks in Ottawa, they weren't charged with terrorism. They were charged with conspiracy to commit murder. So I think the court system is woefully ignorant when it comes to what terrorism is. Secondly, um, it's hard to prove. So the way the criminal code reads, it has to be a serious act of violence planned or perpetrated for political, ideological, or religious reasons, or motivations, rather. How do you prove motivation? You can prove intent. How do you prove motivation? And there's an interesting case going on now in in London, again, my hometown. The young man that ran over the the Muslim family in in, in the summer of of this year, 2021, he was charged with terrorism. And my question is under what motivation? Mm -hmm. How have you you demonstrated motivation to lay a terrorism charge? Anyhow, it's a whole other story. I just think that that courts don't have the education. And then part of my job when I was with the service was actually to go and brief um, judges. Uh, this is what terrorism is, this is what ideology is, this is what Islamist ideology is. I just think that they're woefully un- unprepared. And as a consequence, they get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And would you only see one, you know, you might get one terrorism case in your entire career on the bench, whereas you see a, a million you know, petty criminality or sexual assault or domestic abuse, whatever kind of thing. I don't think you simply have the intelligence, no pun intended. Uh, on how to deal with it properly, mm-hmm. so I think education is is the key here.
0: I think that's I think that's such an important point. And you know, Phil, one of the other things that Tim um, that you brought up a moment ago, I'm just thinking about the the general public. I mean, what what do you wish or what would you want the Canadian public to know about the state of terrorism, the threat of terrorism? today in our country? What should we be aware of, thinking about? What are some of the misconceptions?
1: Well, as I said, I don't want Canadians to panic because Mm -hmm. this is not an existential threat. I want them to realize that terrorism is real. Uh, It does happen here in Canada. Canada is not immune from terrorism. It's not immune for a whole host of reasons. Part of it is our foreign deployments. Uh, like I said, we were in Afghanistan, we, we've been in Cyprus since 1974, I believe. Uh, we've been in the Sahel, we've been in all kinds of missions. Uh, so our actions abroad do bring attention to us. Uh, we are seen as, as part of NATO, we are seen as part of the Western Alliance, and for a lot of groups, especially as the most extremist groups, we are the enemy as a, as a consequence. I want Canadians to realize that um, we have competent organizations um, that are fighting terrorism on our behalf. So primarily CSIS, uh, CSE, and the RCMP, National Defense to some extent as well. And uh, I want them to, you know, to, to listen when people who, you know, such as myself who worked in counterterrorism for as long as we did speak to these matters that we're not speaking off, off the cuff. We're not speaking about something that we just learned about yesterday. These are things that we worked at for decades. And, 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 you know, it's important to have an understanding of these matters. It's important to realize just how real that they are without again, pushing the panic button mm. and, and and I think as as consumers of information, this is just a general piece of advice I give everybody, you know, don't leave everything that you read and hear. And as I said earlier, there seems to be this this narrative now that the only terrorism worth worrying about in Canada and in the West writ large is right-wing extremism. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying we ignore right-wing extremism, it is very real, but it's not the only thing out there. And and, and, and it worries me that there's this movement now and it's very it's a it's a very it's gaining ground that well we can't use the term islamist extremism it's racist it's not racist it's a, it's a precise term to use because that's what these guys are They're islamist terrorists mm-hmm. and and people are trying to say well you know you're over exaggerating or you're, you're you're islamophobic if you if you talk about muslim terrorists i'm not Islam. i'm describing the reality as as it is and and i and i get worried that that um the terrorism understanding is now subject to woke culture. It's subject to cancel culture. And as a consequence, people are, are are now more poorly educated about the threat than they were five years ago.
0: That's fascinating. That is that is such that is so interesting because I guess it's it's the it's the dilemma of we have more information than we've ever had. Yeah ever in the, in the past at our yeah. fingertips, but yeah. that's also the problem yeah. because, you know, people yeah. have to sort through what's real, what's not.
1: Yeah. Like and I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm active on Twitter I, I, on a given day. I'm tweeting 30 attacks or, 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 or for attacks around the world on a, on a daily basis. That's every day we get, Monday through Friday, 365 days a year. So yeah, we have access to the information and, and uh, you, you know, but you have to become an informed user of the information. Mm-hmm. We all know about false information. We all know about fake data um, you've got to, you know, figure out what are, what are trustworthy sources and what are not trustworthy sources. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, hopefully you'll decide to listen to more of the trustworthy ones than ignore the others.
0: Let's hope. Let's definitely hope. (laughs) Um, Phil, you know, one of the, uh, there are a couple of, uh, you know, significant events that happened towards the end of the, the summer, early September, you know, the first obviously being, um, the, well, let's say the The end to the war in Afghanistan, and obviously all the scenes that played out with the evacuations that took place, and now seeing the Taliban back in control. You know, I'm so curious around what your thoughts were, you know, seeing those scenes play out and just wondering as well, you know, has this essentially created a security vacuum Mm -hmm. where ISIS, Taliban, Al Qaeda, other groups could make a resurgence?
1: Uh, very much so. The, the one thing that, Rianne, that surprises me was that anybody was surprised by any of this. As I said, as somebody reads reason news on a daily basis, I was tweeting out an, a, a Taliban attack every day for the past four or five years. Every day, the Taliban were attacking people in Afghanistan, Afghan army, Afghan police, Afghan civilians. This was the most obvious prediction that could have been made, is that when the Americans decide to eventually withdraw from Afghanistan, you know, I'll leave aside the incredible idiocy of the U.S. president um, talking peace with the Taliban, talking peace with a terrorist organization. This was not this was so obvious. We all anyone who followed Afghanistan and I'm not an Afghan expert, but i just the imagination knew that it was a matter of time before the Taliban took over. Was I surprised it took six days rather than six months, as so- so-called experts have said? Not really. Um, This was the the most obvious thing um, in history that was going to happen. And and it it worries me that people said, no one predicted this. Well, of course we predicted it. People, for some unknown reason, we're talking about Taliban 2.0. There would be a new Taliban, a different Taliban, a gentler, kinder Taliban. How's that worked out for us so far? Well, again, if you follow me on Twitter... Women, just today, women in Kabul were told, don't come to work. You're not welcome anymore. Girls are not going to school. The Taliban are carrying out terrorist attacks against the Hazara Shia. Because of course they're jihadis and jihadis hate Shia Muslims. Then you got the whole ISIS affiliate, ISIS and Khorasan that's there. And they're all ex-Taliban for the most part, who hate the Taliban. So now you got inter-Jihadi rivalry as well. Al Qaeda is still like a, a, a Taliban ally. They're still friends. So you talk, you know, Afghanistan has, has again become a haven for terrorism. I mean, I, I gotta use the word again carefully because it always was a haven for terrorism under the Taliban.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not saying we're gonna see another 9-11, but What's interesting to me is in the aftermath of the Taliban takeover, you looked at what was happening on jihadi websites. My God, it was like it was it was like it was a celebration. We won. We defeated the Mm -hmm. Americans. We defeated the greatest army in the history of the universe. And, you know, a bunch of guys with, uh, you know, IEDs and rocket propel grenades defeated the American military. God is on our side. God has blessed us with victory and they're taking inspiration from Mm -hmm. from, from all around the world, not just in Afghanistan. And so, I mean, are we going to see more terrorism? Absolutely. Uh, You know, again, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not going to say we're going to see something on the order of 9-11, but this event has galvanized Islamist extremists around the world. And it's not going to end well for any of us and especially for the Afghan people. Um, Afghan's already one of the poorest countries in the world. If women can't go to work, then how do they earn money to support their families? If girls don't go to school, how do they get education to get jobs? Not good. Um, and again, it was it was the least surprising thing that ever happened. And I don't understand why people said that this was completely off our radar. Well, then you weren't looking at your radar very well.
0: Definitely. I mean, even, even in the months leading up to it, there were... <laughs> Veterans groups, even you know, coming out and saying we have yeah. to, yeah. we have to do something. We have to help our allies that are that yes. are there that help support us. And, and I guess you know, there was a lot of there seemed to be a lot of anger and rightfully so from Canadians around how what took us so long yeah. as Canadians to do something to to help. What, what do you think went so woefully wrong with with helping to? you know, uh, establish these evacuations and and provide some tangible help. It seemed like it just was locked in some bureaucracy and yeah. slow motion.
1: I, I like, yeah, I like the words bureaucracy and slow motion. I, mean, I think this government has been woefully incompetent in this regard. And, but I will just simply say, I don't think the Trudeau government understands intelligence anyway. I, I, I've seen that crystal clear over the past six years. Not that most Canadian governments get intelligence. We have a woeful intelligence culture in this country and always have compared to our allies. Yeah, this is criminal as far as I'm concerned. There were men and women who helped us as interpreters, as guides, and and the fact that we knew where they were, we could have gotten them out and we didn't, is that's on us. And and and, and to say what well, we're looking at it is I'm sorry, that's inexcusable. This could have been done in a heartbeat. You send JTF two or whatever in, get go in, get out, no must, no fuss. We could have saved them and we didn't. This government wears that, and Canadians are rightfully angry at this. These are people in Afghanistan that put their lives on the line to help us during our mission in Afghanistan and afterwards, and we owe it to them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we haven't uh, done even the minimal to to help them, I'm embarrassed, actually, as a Canadian. This has mm-hmm. happened, and it doesn't look good on the Trudeau government that they haven't done. And, and again, it is it is locked in some bureaucracy somewhere, but you know as well as I do, Rand, you've been in the government. Bureaucracies mm-hmm. can be very, very hard things to wade through, but this could have been handled with the like that Absolutely. just load a plane with the great guys find them get them out get out of dodge and we didn't and mm-hmm. uh, there's no there, there are no excuses I, you know and I'm, I'm working with people at the university of ottawa who've been active on this front saying this you know back in early 2021 this is coming guys this is coming guys mm-hmm. this is coming guys and then when it came it's like nothing so no it, it's it's I'm not going to try to lay excuses for the Trudeau government. They, they they dropped the ball big time on this one. And,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Canadians should, should should take it to the task force.
0: Yeah. I I uh, I definitely agree with what, what you're saying there. It, it just was so frustrating that it just seemed like there was, you know, just thinking about, you know, some of the things that were put in place around having to access printers and internet yeah. to fill out forms. And they yeah. were in English. And it was like, there's no comprehension of what's going on in the ground. There's such a disconnect between.
1: <laughs> well, maybe that's what happens when you, you know, again, when you get new bureaucracies, right? Well, you know, you've seen it and I've seen it. Um, well, you have to fill out this form. Why? Well, because you do, because you've always filled up these forms. Well, why? Because you have to I mean, yeah. like screw the forms. Just get on a plane, get them out, and bring them home. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's everything that everyone you know. You probably I don't know if you remember some of the some of the old Dickens novels about bureaucracies and, and things like that. It's like you know these beasts on their own, and they mm-hmm. they exist for their own existence. And this is a case where that happened, and unfortunately, people are going to die as a consequence. Yeah.
0: One of the one of the other things I I'm, I'm really interested in in your views on, uh, Phil, and another thing that's being talked about quite a lot um in, in the news as of late, is around what do countries, whether Canada or some of our you know European uh friends overseas, what do we do about Citizens who went overseas to places like Syria, former ISIS supporters, fighters, etc., who now want to return back to their homes. What what is the answer? How do we start to navigate this very tricky situation?
1: Um, sorry, product placement number three. As a book on Western <laughs> foreign fighters from 2015 go. Thank you. that I wrote. Um, I have a very strong position on this, Rianne, and it, it, I'll, I'll try to simplify it as much as possible. Any Canadian who decided that joining Islamic State or Jabhat al-Nusra or whatever jihadi groups are fighting in northern Syria, northern Iraq over the past you know half a decade or so, deserves to be punished and put on trial by the very people who were hurt. The very people who were hurt are Syrians and Iraqis and Kurds. They deserve to see their, their criminals stand trial. They deserve them to be uh, tried if, if found guilty, sentenced and spent time in jails. There's no excuse. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, I didn't realize they were this bad. Oh, I was forced to go. Oh, I just followed my husband. You know what? We used to, we used to joke at CSIS when we used to interview people that had spent time in Afghanistan and we asked them what they did. And we got two responses. These are two classic responses from people. One was, I just drove the bus, meaning they would drive jihadis to training camps, or I just served the tea. Mm-hmm. No one ever picked up a gun. No one ever built an IED. Mm-hmm. No one ever killed anybody. And you're seeing, you're hearing the same bullshit coming out of Northern Iraq and Syria as well. Oh, I didn't do anything. You know, oh, as soon as I got here, I wanted to come home. Well, you know what? Choices have their consequences. So I'm a big, a big fan of having um, them be tried in situ. If necessary, we, if we have, if we can help them with trials, the Kurds have asked for assistance. The Swedes have, have offered the Kurds assistance in setting up courts. Great idea in favor of that. But There's one exception is and an exception is the children. The children didn't make a decision to go join a terrorist group. In fact, some of them were born That's under the true. caliphate mm-hmm. and I have been, gone on record publicly. I've been, uh, roundly damned for saying this, the children should be removed from their parents and placed with extended family back in Canada, or if they're orphaned, they should be placed in state care as wards of the state. And I've been accused of breaking up families to which I respond. So what happens in Canada if a child is being sexually or physically abused by their parents? Do we just let it go on because, well, you don't want to break up the family? Of course not. We remove the child for his or her safety. Any parent who brought their child to this Islamic State so-called caliphate is by definition unfit parent. No parent brings their child to join a terrorist group. If they're tried, maybe they they can serve their sentences here in Canada. uh, Once they're found guilty, that's an issue we can cross down the road. But the trial has to take place first. And the trial has Mm -hmm. to take place where the witnesses are available. And the witnesses are not in Etobicoke and in Moose Jaw and in Mm -hmm. Kamloops. The witnesses are in northern Iraq and Syria. And so that's where the trial should take place. Um, Are they suffering in, in the refugee camps? I'm sure they are. But, you know, as I said, choices have their, their, their consequences, and I, I, I don't lose any sleep over these men and women who decided joining ISIS was a good idea. I do lose sleep over the children. I mean, I'm a parent. I have, I have three grandchildren now. I can't imagine my four-year-old grandson mm-hmm. growing up in a refugee camp in northern Syria. Um, if the trials are held, will there be capital punishment? Possibly. I'm, I'm, I'm against capital punishment by definition, but who am I to tell the Syrian government what laws to apply? How arrogant mm-hmm. am I as a Canadian say, well, you can't kill a person because you're Canadian. You know, Rhiannon, I've, I've, I've traveled around the world many times to talk about these types of things. And one experience that always always strikes me as, as, as very, it really resonates is if you go to Singapore and you got the plane in Singapore and you're going to get your luggage, you don't get three steps off the airplane before you face this sign. It's probably about 10 feet tall. So about three meters. And the mm-hmm. sign says, drug dealers will be executed.
0: Oh my gosh. So if you
1: go to Singapore <laughs> wow. and you're, and you're dealing cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine or whatever, and you're found and you're found guilty, they will kill you. That is Singaporean law. And they tell you that as soon as you get off the plane. So do I agree with it? No, but I'm not Singaporean. And you know, when in Rome, you do the Romans do. Mm. So when in Singapore, if, if, if capital punishment is the, is the, is the punishment for, for doing drugs, that's what the Singaporeans have decided. I don't agree with it, but I'm going to tell the Singaporeans what to do. So, you know, again, what worries me um, is is the compassion that people are feeling for these adults. We now, there's a lawsuit that's been launched to try to sue the Canadian government for not lifting a finger to help these people. We have a lot of problems in this country, Leanne. A lot of people are suffering in Canada. And you want the Canadian government to spend tens of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. to extract people who join the most heinous Terrorist group in modern history, which is, and I hate to say this, but it's important to say, raped little girls, mm-hmm. killed people, threw people off buildings, burned people alive, drowned people in cages, and we're feeling sorry for these people. Like, what parallel universe have I entered right now? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's a very harsh position. I recognize that. And again, people have, have you know called me very um, I don't know, unemotional or cruel, but I'm sorry. Um, I've talked to people who who have been the victim of terrorists and I don't have a lot of time for people who who think that joining a terrorist group is a wise a wise career move.
0: Well, I mean, you know, Phil the the thing is, you know, your your viewpoints on this are informed by decades of experience like you like you just said um Working and and speaking with victims of of terrorism, studying all the different things that ha- that happen. So, you know, your view is going to be different because it is so intimately informed by so. what's been happening on the ground. So okay
1: and it just is again you know again i'm a proud canadian ran you know when i bleed i bleed maple leaf red um but i just it worries me how woefully naive a lot of canadians are um great canadians great people but boy look out your back window you know inform yourself as to what this is really going on out there um it doesn't help when you you all of a sudden feel sympathy for somebody who who thought they're joining a group that you know Cap, rape camps is, is is was a good idea. I, come on, wake up and smell the coffee.
0: So thinking about then the the intelligence community and kind of the the next the the next wave of skills and experience and and expertise. What do you think? The organizations like CSIS or, or our colleagues in, in the Five Eyes. What what type of skills and expertise do they need? What are they What are they looking for? What type of people? What type of attributes? Um, what do we What do we need um, for for a modern day service?
1: I think passion is really important. Uh, a passion for learning. A passion for really getting to the the the, the, the kernels, the nucleus of what's happening out there. An ability to say, I don't know, but I'm going to do my best to find out. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse than going and thinking you have all the answers. I worked with people. I remember in early in my days at CSE, I had a young lady who, who reported to me. I was a you know a senior linguist that, you know, four years and she had just been hired. And she basically told me, well, you're not qualified to, to oversee my work. My work is perfect. I said, well, if you have that kind of attitude, you're not going to last for long. And in the actual fact, she didn't last for long. Um, a, a lot of humility. Um, I've made mistakes. I've, I've called things wrong, um, embarrassingly so. Um, one example, the Anders Breivik attack in Norway and 10 years ago in 2011. We had a stream of reporting that said that the jihadis were targeting Norway. I was asked to do a report before all the information was available. I should have said no. I didn't. And so I wrote a report saying, This is what we think it was. And I was 100% wrong. It was, mm-hmm. it was very embarrassing to have called something so. so because you know, we learned the next day it wasn't a jihadi it was a, it was a neo-Nazi white supremacist. Um that's that's hard to take when you're mm-hmm. you know you stake your reputation on that. Um obviously the ability to work with others uh, there's no man is an island no person is an island and these are team efforts. So yeah it's it's just this notion that and, and, and that you want to make a difference and, and intelligence services and law enforcement do make differences in Canadian society and in our amongst our allies. You know, you can you can be a proud Canadian or a proud American or whatever, but you also you want to do, you know, do, do good by your people and and help your help governments and help your population understand what, what these threats are, whether they're criminal threats or terrorism threats or whatever. Um, and, and just this 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 openness to learning. Again, when I started at CSE, you know, more than good God, it's almost 40 years ago, 40 years next, 40, 40, 40 years and two years I started there. I had no idea. I was going to become, A, an Arabic and Farsi linguist, uh, B, a Middle Eastern specialist, and later a terrorism specialist. I mean, if you told me that in, in 1982, I would have said that you're, you're smoking something <laughs> kind of funny, right? Um, so openness to opportunities. And mm-hmm. um, it worked out for me. And uh, I hope it does for lots of Canadians. So what I, what I do a lot of now is I actually advise young people okay. uh, on careers in security intelligence and what they can do. Courses to take, avenues to pursue, uh, ways of presenting themselves. Because what I what I'd like to see is the next generation of really bright Canadians have the same opportunities that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just an old retired guy right now. So I rely on other people to try to keep me safe. I'm not involved in investigations anymore. I'm mm-hmm. not involved in operations. So if I can help the next generation of Canadians do this, then it makes me a happy camper. It makes me feel better.
0: Well, I I think those are those are some really great insights in terms of, you know, what what are some of the needed skills and expertise and you know attributes to have. And I am curious, you know, with some of the mentoring that you're doing, mm. um, in addition to what you've just mentioned, you know, are there any other piece of pieces of advice that you would you would provide?
1: Um, here's a here's a big one. A lot of people these days, uh, from what I understand, uh, when they When they consume information, they have information pushed to them as opposed to information they pull themselves. I don't agree with that uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that whatever the algorithm is that's pushing information to you you might get it wrong. They might not really know what you're interested in. Secondly, and and you've probably heard this as much as I had, some of these algorithms go down rabbit holes that get really kind of scary at some point, right? If you like this video, you like this video kind of thing. I'm a big believer in pulling rather than pushing. So I spend two to three hours a day, every day reading somewhere on the average of about 200 websites around the world, seeing what's happening uh, in, in, in terrorism, especially and in national security. I may do a blog on it or a podcast or a tweet about it or whatever kind of thing, or I might get a call from Canadian media. What do you think about this kind of stuff? Staying informed is a big, big part of it, and it takes effort. Um, it is, it's not five minutes a day. I'm not saying it's three hours a day. I mean, I have the luxury of being retired. I don't have to go to a job anymore. But I'm if you're not spending a minimum thirty to sixty minutes a day reading what's happening you're probably not well informed when i used to work at CSIS, um the first thing i did every morning after i got to work was i would look at everything that was placed in the box the system over the previous 24 hours and i would average somewhere between two and 300 messages i would read every single one
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i would then i would read what's called my SIGINT pull so and that was on average about 1800 documents that I would i wouldn't read obviously read all 1800 i'd still be doing it all day but i would scan 1800 documents to see what was important that was my way of preparing myself for the day ahead. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that has to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it takes time. I mean, there are things that don't come easily, uh, and informing yourself is one of them. Absolutely. So, if you're not willing to do that, maybe you don't want to pursue a career in security intelligence.
0: Well, you know, I think that, you know, in addition to that being a great piece of advice for security intelligence, um, Uh, individuals who are interested in getting and having a career or already in the career. I think that's actually very wise advice for, for all careers, uh, to be honest, Um, especially those who are in the kind of the, the knowledge industries. Right. So I think that's, that's, that's incredibly helpful. And uh, I think a a good reminder to, to everyone to, to make sure that that is, that is happening. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time today. I, I, have so many other questions um that i would love to chat through with you but there's um, a part
1: two where at some point down the road yes i i think i think
0: so um again i I'm very appreciative of your your time um phil I, I know you mentioned um you know that you that you're active on on twitter for instance um i'll make sure i put all that in the uh, in the show notes um are you open to people you know contacting you absolutely
1: or, either by email or on twitter um feel free um, even, you know, give me a call. I, I'm more than happy to talk to people who are have questions about national security or security intelligence and want careers in it. Uh, by all means, please uh, be, feel free to put my name out.
0: That's fantastic, Phil. Thank you so much. And um, again, appreciate it. And thank you for keeping us safe, not only for <laughs> your official career, but uh, for your very um, passionate uh activism and um, commitment to information sharing. I I know that benefits all of us. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Rianne. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can get 10% off Phil's new book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to Present if you use the code JUSTCAUSE and more details um, on how to get this book are provided in the show's notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to help spread the word about this new podcast by giving us a rating and a review on your podcast platform. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you and see you next time.